Well, when we can hear it, we all know what that music means. <laughs> it's Dr. Stu's podcast with me, Dr. Stuart Fishbein, your host. Uh, this is podcast number 149. I'm here with my bestest pal. I think I only called her my pal last time. Yeah, I was yeah, that I know, about you I've felt bad because it was it was a <laughs> it was a guy thing, you know. It was just a, some testosterone in the room. There was. Yeah. I enjoyed having him though. Yeah, was he was really great. great. So anyway, this is my bestest pal, Blisterious One is here. How are you doing? I'm doing pretty good. I'm uh, hungry again. This we have to think about this. We've we talked about maybe having people deliver food to us during the podcast. I really think that Oh, we could just bring food. <laughs> it's like it's it's, it's like we're only we're only like six minutes from my apartment, so it's, it's not. How's that going, by the I way? I could just bring a sandwich for you. you yeah, bring you me like, a sandwich. Do you like sandwiches? No, but does I'm anybody s- still eat sandwiches anymore? I mean, everything's so fancy now. It's got to have like be brioche bread, or it's got to have still a uh, sandwich. Pita bread, or you know. You said that you were going to start a podcast on sandwiches and we would talk about sandwiches. And I was like, no, I don't really like sandwiches. <laughs> I know. Whatever happened to that idea? It, Went yeah. the way of a lot of my ideas. <laughs> it just kind of disappeared. How's your new place? Uh, it's the same size as it was last time we spoke. But I mean, are you enjoying being like, <laughs> yes. you know? Yeah, I actually love it. Yeah. I actually love it. What I, do you love do. about it? Uh, I love that it's small mm-hmm. and that it's, you know, it's it's just easy. Um, you know, I can park my car, even though I have to park it myself now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and I can just walk into my apartment. I don't have to go up like two elevators and, yeah. and all that other stuff that I used to have to do. And I don't miss that really at all. Call ahead for your I don't car. Miss, you know, driving up and over the hill every, you know, three, four times a, a week is not a, not a joy. But if you range the times, it's not so bad. Yeah. You know, people, I live in the valley now and I work on the other side of the hill. And so if... If I leave my house at 6.15 in the morning, it takes 25 minutes. And if I leave at 7 in the morning, it takes an hour and 15 minutes. LA. Yeah, it's just it's just the way it is. So I get up, yeah. I either get up really early or I, or I don't start work until 10 or 10.30. Mm-hmm. Uh, I do like that. I love the neighborhood now. I mean, I, I'm closer to my boys. Oh, cool. And I'm, you know, and we've got, we've socialized more times now in the last few weeks than I probably did in six months when, I, when I lived downtown, except for King's Games. Mm-hmm. And, um... Yeah, it's convenient. There's little stores. I went to, uh, I had to buy some birthday presents one day. I didn't have any plan. I just went to walk and I walked down on Ventura Boulevard and I just started walking along. I found a little boutique and I found two nice little gifts there and I, I bought them and nice. it made it real easily. I mean, real easy. And so it was great. Yeah, it was great. Awesome. You said your cat's not happy. No. <laughs> no, I can't quite figure that out. As a matter of fact, this morning I meant to, I got busy uh, taking care of my horse that's got that's not it's got a problem too hmm. but uh i wanted to look up on the google i wanted to google uh, why do cats poop where they're not supposed to they're well, not happy they yeah, don't but, like change yeah hmm. but it's been about three weeks now yeah longer really yeah they're like women they need time really don't rush them but he's a boy they're still like women oh. cats are more like women than dogs Dogs are more like men. Then why do they call ugly women dogs? <laughs> no idea. I'm not even going to have that conversation with you. <laughs> wow. Right. <laughs> Isn't it interesting what our brains will do? Okay, yeah. so, any yeah. births? I don't know. No, I don't know why my cat does that. I mean, I just told he, you. <laughs> he did it before in the old place, too. But not but on, not your on bed. the bed. It's angry that you moved. Really? Yeah. 
so it wants to do it in a place that well if he's angry much longer him. he'll be living in the forest someplace i feel exactly the same way i mean oh gosh pita is going to come down on this but i wouldn't put it out in the forest but i do feel like if a cat pees on my carpet i can't we just can't live together yeah it's not going to work but out. but you can't tell the cat that i do actually and oh. none of my cats pee on the carpet really they actually listen to you they do can you come over and talk to my cat i will all right I'll try. I'm going to hold you to that. All you right. know who else is a, is a animal whisperer? Desi. Oh. She actually literally can talk to animals. Okay. So we'll come Does over. She, is she also an animal adopter? She she will. <laughs> <laughs> Much to her husband's dismay because yeah. they've got like no, 27 No, I, I could never get rid of animals. Homer. I can't get rid of Homer, but I'm just saying that this is, it's, it's, it can't, this cannot become a habit. Yeah. Have a real talk. Apo- fortunately, apologize. Fortunately, he doesn't pee. Any place, because the you know the it's the pee that it's horrible. Yeah, you need to apologize. All right, I'll have a long talk with yeah. you today, and then let's talk about it on the next podcast. We will. Okay, I think that that's very important. We'll make a note, like talking about Florence Nightingale and other things that we forgot to talk Good about. Segue. Well, I decided without talking to you about it because yes. we're we're so um, full with these fabulous guests this time that we would make sure for our listeners that listen every time um, we'll make sure and talk about self-care and Florence Nightingale next time okay because we do have a guest to this be time continued. but before we do that I have one birth that I want to talk about with you All right. okay it's uh, it was a woman who had her second VBAC after three C-sections mm-hmm. which I love what's the initials for that v- VBA Three C. Yeah. Yeah. She had three C sections. First three pregnancies were C sections. All the first one was she got hoodwinked. Mm-hmm. The second one she was re hoodwinked. <laughs> the third one she was told she had to have an elective repeat. So I guess that's three hoodwinks. Three hoodwinks. Mm-hmm. And then the fourth one she came to us, and she had a very quick labor with her fourth baby. And this one she kind of had prodromal labor for a couple nights, but really wasn't doing anything. And around, you know, five in the afternoon, she started contracting regularly. And by 7.40, the baby was in the water. (laughs) (laughs) Baby just fell out? Yep. Yeah. The end. The end. (laughs) It was it. (laughs) Baby came out, the end. (laughs) Right. It was great. It was great. And and she's got four beautiful older children that were all involved in the birth. Anybody take pictures? Oh, yeah, tons. Did they get in the tub? No. No, she would not, not even the husband got in the tub, but they were all, I mean, all but the little boy was in the room. The three older, the three older daughters were all in the room. Mm. And, uh, oh my God, it's, it's so good. This family, I'm so, I I wouldn't say jealous because I'm, I'm thrilled for them. I'm envious of the fact that, that they've all witnessed these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. They're all homeschooled. Mm -hmm. They're, they're amazingly bright. Yeah. Amazingly social. I love it. I love it. Did you see the picture that was going around about the kid that was in the the tub? And I guess they got distracted because they were paying attention to the new baby. And there's a picture of the kid leaning down into the tub, taking a drink out of the no, pool. No, I didn't see that. Not the best PR for uh, home birth, must say. But yeah, well, happens. Yeah, and nothing happened to the kid, right? Uh, I never did a follow up, but I would assume not. No, no, no. No, but other, the picture than, other than itself, it, don't do that again. The but. picture itself was not great. <laughs> was it? Was it not? Was it cute or was it not cute? The dad's like, oh, like you can't, you can't see me, but tra- like trying to in mid action, trying to. And stop. we're sure it wasn't staged for social media. 
I don't think so. Okay. But that's a possibility. A lot yeah. of things are staged. Well, a lot of things. How do you media. know anymore? You just don't know anymore. You don't know anymore. It's no. true. What's real? What is real? I was going to tell you. You and I. You and I are real. We are. Dr. Stu's podcast <laughs> is real. No, real. There's no phony stuff on Dr. We don't Stu's even podcast. edit it, really. No. Uh-uh. Yeah, we just go straight through. We don't. Every once in a while. Which is why... T- <laughs> Never mind. <laughs> Which is why some things in there we should have edited, but we don't. I was going to tell you, our podcast is one of my favorite podcasts now. You like listening to us? Is that funny? Us? Is that funny? It's it's delightful. No, it's, it's not funny at all. <laughs> First, I wasn't even subscribed. No, I listened to it again because I think it's good to hear what we've talked about and like remind myself that I don't want to repeat that on the next one or um, things that we said we were going to talk about, like Florence Nightingale, to make sure that you know we bring that back up. So. But yeah. I'll forget. I, like last time I couldn't remember what podcast it was. <laughs> and Fortunately, this one I remembered. Counted on me for that. Did yeah. you say it? Yeah. Okay. 149. Okay. Right. Great. Okay. So, so um, it, as you said, we uh, don't want to waste a lot of time with chit chat because we have a, a brilliant guest today. We and do. I'm going to let you do the honors. We do. Because she's really a dear friend of yours, she is a dear as well as a colleague and mentor. Mm-hmm. To a lot of us, and some of the people who are listening obviously are going to know who we're talking about, so take it away. So, Augustine Colebrook, if I'm saying that right, um, I never call you by your last name, so I was like, do I remember her last name? Um, was one of my preceptors when I was in school, and I went to her um, birth center in Oregon for three weeks, and actually, she was traveling. We'll talk more about this when I actually let her talk. <laughs> I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to do her introduction. I'll do that, and then we'll chat. You should always start with the introduction. That's why it's called an introduction. He's training me, even now. Okay, so Augustine Kolbrak is a nationally recognized midwifery educator, experienced business executive, and veteran midwife with a heart focused on the underserved. She respects a woman's need for the empowerment Powering feelings of being undisturbed during labor. She balances this attention to the sacred with 20 years experience attending births in hospitals, birth centers, and homes in rural, urban, suburban environments in the U.S. and abroad. Augustine's focus is finely attuned to the process of letting go and opening to the unknown in labor and life. I agree with that. Her mission is to mainstream midwifery and deconstruct the culture of fear and misinformation that surrounds the U.S. maternity world. To that end, Augustine midwives the midwife through her education programs, consulting services, product development, and private coaching servicing midwives, blah, blah, blah. There's a lot of people there. I'm going to skip that part because there's other things I want to say. She has been teaching midwives and students for more than a decade and delights in seeing the light bulb when a new skills or a concept is mastered. Um, That's a very cool thing to put in your bio. I think that's really cool, Augustine. She's so cool. Um, Augustine has been interviewed uh, for... Mothering Parents and Parenting Magazines and featured in a chapter of The Business of Being Born by your friend, Jennifer Margulis. No, that's Business of Baby. Business of Baby. Right. I said it wrong. B- yeah, Business of Being Born is uh, Ricky's and uh, Abby's. Say Jennifer's name. last name. Margulis. Yeah, Margulis. I didn't want to mispronounce that. Um, right now, Augustine is graduating this weekend from Bastyr Um, University in Seattle, Washington, where she received a master's in arts in maternal child health systems. In her spare time, Augustine leads adventure retreats for women hesitant about the unknown. She loves to travel and is passionate about 
local food, sustainable communities, and clean energy and tiny houses. Oh, you'd like my apartment then. <laughs> it's not tiny enough. Oh, it's not? <laughs> oh, shoot. Okay. Hi, guys. Thanks for having Augustine, me. thank you for being here. Yeah. So it just happened that Augustine has been traveling all over. Last year, she moved to Maui, and I jumped on a plane immediately and said, I'm coming to see you. And this was about the same time that she was buying a bus to live on Maui and convert it into a tiny home. Oh, that's that would true. be tiny. Yeah, that would be tinier than my spot. 169 much, square feet. Okay. Yeah, tiny, tiny. Um, and then uh, has been traveling, which I'd love for you to talk more about, and, um, and needed a, a soft place to land. So she came to my house for two weeks to finish her dissertation. Thesis. Thesis. And, um, and now is going from here this weekend to get her... Diploma. Diploma. Yeah, she's got a graduation. She, she, I heard you got your cap and gown picked out by your friends. Yeah. That's really exciting. And we're, some on, we're, fancy on, we're, honored, we're honored that you took the time out of your day to um, come on the podcast. No, because, I'm honored. Because, I mean, normally we, we do lots of fun stuff and we laugh and joke and stuff like that. And we're going to have some fun with you. But, but you have so <laughs> really? much. You <laughs> have so much. Uh, yeah, yeah. You'll find out. <laughs> yes. yes. Uh, you have, we have so much. Uh, you have so much to offer about all the things that you do. I want to get into, I mean, I, I, Bliss and I want to get into some of the things that, that are in your bio and then, and let you have free range to talk about whatever you feel you'd like to our listeners to talk about. We do have a, a very broad audience. I mean, we have people listening all over the world. Awesome. Right. I still never know how many, though. We can't figure that out. <laughs> Install Google Analytics. He can help you. Yeah, it, but that doesn't tell you how many people actually listened. Well, it Just tells how many clicked clicks. on the page. Yeah. And presumably, if they click, they listen. Oh, that would be a, that would be a, Interesting presumption. I, I've clicked on a lot of podcasts and not listened to them. So not all the way through, maybe, but somehow you'd start it. Uh, but at least we know that. I so think. Oh, we do. We can know that. Renee, if you're listening, <laughs> all right. I want. I want an email to tell me how many Google clicks we get. All right, go. Damn, go. Um, so tell us where you've been. Where Where were you when you came to see me? What's I been going on? I flew in from Panama City. Mm-hmm. Um. I actually went to Panama with the intention to meet up with Rodrigo Ayubar. He's an obstetrician. Yeah. You know him. But, yeah. he, wait, but he's not from Panama. Yeah, Panama City is oh, where he's from his Panama. center is. Oh, he is? Mm-hmm. Oh, I always thought he was from Brazil or something. No. No, no. Okay. That's a, I know who you're talking about. That's another guy. Anyway, Rodrigo and I had been in touch. We met at a conference a couple years ago and wanted to um, connect. And somehow with his life and schedule, we weren't able to. And so instead, I went sailing in the Caribbean to an uninhabited group of islands called the San Blas Islands. And were there dinosaurs there? There were not, but there was it's Damn an it. incredible place actually. The Gunayala people live there and they're the most culturally preserved tribe in all of the Americas. They and live on the island? They live on the islands. I thought you said it was uninhabited. There's there's three hundred and forty five <laughs> islands and only forty five okay. of them are inhabited. So uh, just that's my brain. It just many. does that sort of thing. Yeah. So anyway I got to meet them and it's a fascinating culture actually. I learned so much. It's a matrilineal culture, which is part of the reason why they think that they've been so successful at preserving their history. And I was asking them about midwifery care and where they have their babies. And and, uh, and what did they say? Just as short as 25 years ago, uh, many babies were still born on the islands with their shaman leaders, folks there that had midwifery experience. But like many cultures, they now take a boat to mainland and go to a clinic. Oh, mm-hmm. so it's, it's, yeah, it's very much like, mm-hmm. yeah, I mean, that's happened. I, I trained in Alaska when I was yeah. uh, years ago, and 
all the women from the from all over the in the boonies out there they'd all fly to anchorage last month and they live in a dormitory yeah and it's we're, terrible we're, i think it's being called now a birth desert or provider desert and and uh, the new statistics coming out show that 50 percent of the counties in the united states lack obstetrical services and um, most women living in rural areas have more than 50 miles to drive to um, reach obstetrical services. And this is in the U.S., not in Panama. But yep. still, I think it's happening all over the world as we centralize and, um, you know, institutionalize health care. We, we, we are losing community-based health care. And, of course, that's been my focus my whole career. Yeah. And a lot of it, a lot of it is uh, a pure financial pressure. Some of it's legislative pressure. Um, makes it very difficult. Uh, like the, you know, for instance, just in the in the world of breach providers in California, midwives could do breach up until 2014. That's right. And then they took it and they took it away. Mm-hmm. And so now there's what maybe five or six people that do breach delivery in all of California. I don't know if that's that even that many, quite frankly. I don't think so. I think we just lost one recently. Um, so now that I've introduced you. I want to go back to when we met. Mm. Um, and during my training, you owned a birth center up there that was in a, a lot of, of them. <laughs> yeah, that's true. You did own a couple. Um, mm. But in a lot of ways, our philosophies and, and kind of how we created our birth centers was very similar. Yeah. Um, so why don't you talk a little bit about that, your birth center and your, your yeah. experience with that? Well, mm. I think we actually opened about the same time. I think When did you open? 2010. Yeah, that's when our actual center opened, but we'd been a practice since 2006. Yeah, mm-hmm. eight for me. So I think mm-hmm. we were kind of on a similar path there. Yeah. And, and didn't know each other. I know, it's so fascinating. <laughs> um, and my focus, I think like yours was, was the idea of creating integrated interprofessional care, mm-hmm. that women are not just a uterus when they're giving birth, they're the whole person. And like midwifery serves to, or strives to serve the whole person. We also don't have all of the solutions to many problems that women will complain about everything from physical aches and pains to housing and relationship and child care and resources that we maybe aren't experts or even don't know. And so what I strove to do was create an interprofessional um, health care home. And it was happening right at the time that Obamacare was coming online in the United States and talking about health care homes, uh, medical health care homes. And so we actually applied the way Oregon's Medicaid was set up is that they had these um, HMOs that became, you know, managed care organizations that were managing the, the county level of, of Medicaid. And so when that language came out for the Affordable Care Act, we, we applied to be one of a medical health care home because we had a nurse practitioner and naturopathic physicians and midwives and then massage and acupuncture and chiropractor mm-hmm. and all the other things. That, mm-hmm. And we were denied and actually appealed and went through a whole process being like, we're actually the definition of a health care home. Mm-hmm. We have social services and we have primary care and we have specialty services. And like, this is this is the perfect place. But we're denied. And it, it I didn't know at the time, but it was the start of a real cascade of um, political roadblocks towards um, midwives and birth centers in Oregon. Mm-hmm. And, um, you know, the Affordable Care Act passed in 2010. It wasn't really you know, law until 2012, and then it wasn't implemented in Oregon until 2014 because of all the website and integration issues. And Oregon actually was the state that added the most or changed the line of approval the most. So at the end of implementing the Affordable Care Act in Oregon, 72% of the population qualified for Medicaid services. And this shift in, in patient care dynamics really had a tremendous effect on the small businesses. 
Um, and I, I think the unintentional effect of the Affordable Care Act was that it kind of became like big box um, retail. You know, mm -hmm. like Target and Walmart and everything has taken away all the mom and pop stores. Right. Well, w by consolidating the funds and Medicaid, a lot of small businesses had to go out of business because we don't have the overhead to um, maintain during that transition. And then also um, the volume and waiting for payments caused many small business to go out of, out of business. And the year that I closed, um, I was one of four birth centers that closed in Oregon. And what year was that? Um, that was 2015. That's when we closed. Mm -hmm, I know. For different reasons. I know. But <laughs> Very interesting. And, um, and I was one of 11 senior midwives that retired the following year. Um, and it's, be, I think it's a, a lot in Oregon specifically. And I think it's because of, um, you know, the midwifery has been so ostracized and so marginalized and then, um, trying to fit this affordable care, which I'm generally supportive of, but it has so many flaws in implementation that it, it, it drove out exactly what it was actually trying to preserve, which is unfortunate. Yeah. So, uh, yeah. you know, knowing Bliss knows me very well when I hear stuff like this. It just confirms to me that that people who, you know, they think that 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 something sounds good or it feels good, and so they implement it, and they don't look at the the long term consequences of it. They, it's the stage one, stage two thinking that we talk yeah. about on our podcast yeah. all the time. You know, they put this thing into place when they had good intentions, but the unintended consequences of it were, as you said, to squeeze you know to squeeze out the the small practitioner well, who can't compete who can't afford to have EMR who can't afford to do all the requirements the hoops that they put in to jump or just aren't efficient enough like we don't turn enough volume well but know. but that's but that was designed by the people who put it in mm -hmm. the big the big consumer uh, the big industries that put it in do that purposely mm -hmm. to eliminate the small person and i've seen this in so many different aspects of healthcare where the law will be passed or a regulation will be passed that for instance, I'll give you a perfect example. I used to be a um, provider for uh, what's called the AFP program, or or uh, you know the quad screen, mm -hmm. or it was it was a, it was the triple screen initially here mm -hmm. in California, and so I could screen from I could screen Medi-Cal patients, uh, and I got paid reasonably well for it, and I was an independent person. So what happens is that the big institutions like UCLA and Cedars, and uh, and Stanford they lobby Sacramento to pass a law that says only places with an insight geneticist can be state providers. Now, what difference does it make whether there's an insight geneticist in my, in my office or if it's down the block or around the corner? It doesn't really matter, but they put that in there knowing that the small practice can't, doesn't have an insight geneticist, and therefore that source of revenue and that source of convenience for these women was automatically eliminated. It's discriminatory. And, and yeah. what you just said, mm -hmm. you know, that, that perks my ears up because I have a, you know, I have a sore spot for for that sort of thing when, when we hear that, that people keep wanting more government intervention. They think that the government's the solution for a lot of things, and then it comes in. And even people who support some of these programs don't realize initially what it's going to do. And then when it, once it does it, it's too late to fix it. Yeah, and we weren't the only industry that was affected in that way. I I got the opportunity to speak to chiropractors and podiatrists and pediatricians who had to join big, big groups, could not have their solo practices anymore because they couldn't afford the transition. Um, for instance, Medicaid did not pay out on clients that were registered and uh, you know, signed up with us for um, 14 months. So I went 14 months providing care without any reimbursement. And 
Who can know, do that? Yeah. Only the big box people. That's, yeah, that's I mean, what happens. That's and I bet, you, I bet you it didn't take the big box people 14 months to get paid either. That's crazy. That's probably very right. true. I bet we you never they, they, had a, they had a... Lobbyist, a, a, lawyer, and all that. No, I mean, they, they, they probably had a fast track way of doing mm-hmm. things because they were a big box. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Right. Most midwives don't accept insurance for this very reason mm-hmm. because we can't really afford to... Certainly Medicaid. To l- Private insurance oftentimes will reimburse appropriately. But you have to still run after it. I don't. Yeah. And you've got to like spend all that time or pay people to do that. And mm-hmm. most most midwifery practices don't have that bandwidth to mm-hmm. be able to do that and mm-hmm. wait for payment. So unfortunately, um, that becomes a real issue for access for people who don't just have disposable income to you know be able to have the access to this care. So then you close your birth center. I close my birth center. My kids grew up and moved away. And I thought, hmm, there's no reason to stay here. So I went off. Yeah. <laughs> and you ended up in Hawaii. I was in Hawaii for a little over a year. Um, caught some babies that year. I, I went to create a living classroom. There were several Hawaiian women who wanted to be midwives or partway or, um, you know, at some point on that process and had no preceptor, no access to preceptors. And there's no schools of Hawaii, uh, in Hawaii. And there's, um, it's, it has a real social justice problem. Um, there is a lot of systemic and institutionalized racism in Hawaii. Mm-hmm. And it's a very complicated place because um, it is, it was a sovereign monarchy that was taken over by white businessmen um, and um, is a colonized land. And so um, the descendants of those people who had their land and their life taken, you know, the reality culture, taken, culture, culture taken from them, um, are are in a point of really wanting to have that back. And so there's a lot of um, turmoil, a lot of um, emotions, a lot of misunderstandings. Um, and uh, the two Hawaiian midwives that asked me to come and help them finish graduating um, were, were in that struggle, mm-hmm. not being able to find preceptors. So I, I went and started a living classroom and um, over the course of the year, got to work with six or seven students. Um, I started a monthly study group. Um, uh, I did different in-services and classes and, you know, took care of about 25 women while I was there that year. And it was a really beautiful process. Um, but it's, it seemed time to move on. So, <laughs> so I did. And all the while where you were doing that, you were all living in a bus. <laughs> and not just living in a bus, but remodeling and living in a bus. Yeah. Um, you were going around the states and teaching yeah. advanced midwifery trainings. Yep. And also working on your thesis. Yeah. I did an yeah. accelerated program with all the classes for the year and research and writing your thesis. And so it was, it was a lot. Yeah. It was a lot. And I'm finally finished. I turned in every single required piece of uh, work. And so I'm we done. celebrated yeah, a little we, bit last we, night. Yeah, we did. You did? <laughs> tell us, tell us. No. Tell it just involved a lot of giggling, like <laughs> girls do. Just really giggling? Were you giggling at home or giggling out? We were, g- <laughs> we were giggling out okay. at a, a little um, sushi place near us, okay. near me, that I love this place because it's, it, you know, L.A. can be pretty like... You have to get like dressed up to go places and it's really expensive and you might have to wait in line or you have to make a reservation. This place you can roll up anytime and get a table and it's, and it's good. always happy hour. It's happy hour from 4 p.m. to 11 p.m. <laughs> <laughs> oh. it's good. I love it. Yeah. We had fun. Yeah. 
one of those things where you just start to think about, well, why do they call it happy hour? Because they want everybody happy yeah, all the time. Yeah, but it should be happy multi-hours, or <laughs> it should be happy evening, or happy... <laughs> happy evening, I like that. Yeah, happy evening. It should happy be evening. happy hour is like four to six or something. That's generally... Yeah. <laughs> That's happy hours, anyway. Um, Anyways, we had fun. Yeah, so it's great. And then most of the places in LA are also loud, too. So this is place is not loud, Mm-mm. is it? No. You can come so you, yeah, you're, and you're, it has you're, booths. Your giggling could have been heard all, all through the entire restaurant. Then. I'm sure it was heard oh, several right. streets over. Nice. Um, and you would like it because they have TVs with sports on it, too. What it's a makes combo. you think that? Combo sushi Even our, and sports Even my bar. friend that was there, Michael, he he kept looking over our shoulder to see the Dodger you know what? schedule. It's funny thing about men's eyes. <laughs> Whenever I go out with somebody and there's TVs in the places, I always Wandering position eyes. myself so my back is to the TV because mm-hmm. no matter how hard. hard you want to talk to somebody, or, or it, it, your eyes <laughs> go go to the TV. Or the cute girl walking by. Yeah, mostly Silent. to the TV. Come on. <laughs> you know, my son learned... At, some, at, at certain age, they start just going to the TV. <laughs> my son learned from my ex about yoga pants. Yes. <laughs> and so they would always like do this thing where they would be like, yoga pants. And I was like, then you know what? We'd be in the, in the, in the supermarket and they would be like, yoga pants. And I was like, that's too obvious. Someone's going to overhear you and know that you're looking at their butt in yeah. yoga pants. So it's YP, okay? Just YP. YP. Yeah. So oh my goodness. You know that Men. in LA there's a lot of YP to look at. YP? Because your bladder is full. <laughs> oh my god. That's why people ask me YP. It's because <laughs> I gotta because I gotta go. Were you like were the were the wheels turning the whole time that I was no, telling the story? No, oh just, wow, you're fast. Certain things just out. yeah, just um, stupid is actually <laughs> stupid. I, <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I, and I'm still, well, look at I'm stupid. I'm watching the TV rather than the yoga pants walking. Dumb. <laughs> so I stupid. I know. How, 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 how smart can I be? I'm more interested. Oh, in man. So back to you, our <laughs> lovely guest. YP. Wait, I got you guys giggling, so I just wanted yeah. people to get a sample of the giggling. All right. She's got a great she has giggle. A, yeah, she has an infectious giggle. Oh we got, my. Fortunately, I got to spend the day with her recently. Yeah, uh, yeah. talk about that. Well, just recently. We were going to go uh, riding, but... Uh, Unfortunately, uh, Candelita got herself into a little trouble again, and she had a... Abscess. You tell us about it. It's like a, a stone bruise or something you called it? What did you call and it? And how'd you know this? I've been oh, a horse she's girl a horse person. since way back. Yeah. That's for my audience. Oh, <laughs> I started riding before I could walk. I was raised on backwoods, hippie commune in West Virginia. Right. And you didn't watch TV until what age? I was six the first time I saw a television, and I couldn't figure out how they got the little people in the box. <laughs> yeah. Like, seriously, my little brain was like, what is this? So I had to show her that we're kind of jumping around, but I had to show her an episode of one of the like famous episodes of I Love Lucy where she's putting all the chocolates in her mouth. Yeah. Because you know, she had never seen that. Yeah. She doesn't know a lot of these like things that like a lot of cultural Stu, references. Stu got me up on a lot of 80s music I'd never heard. <laughs> oh, yeah. We, we were playing Pandora. We were playing Pandora in the car and we were listening this to... This is his favorite No, station. California music. So it's like, like, it's like, like Ventura. It's like America, Ventura Highway. And we heard... Jim Croce and the kind of stuff that you'd hear that when I first came to California in the early 80s, 82 is when I came to California. I was going to say, I don't think that's 80s. I think that's 70s. No, but when I first came to California, that music was still being played. And so it it is 70s, but when I was, first time I ever drove on the 101 freeway, Mm -hmm. you know, in the valley, Mm -hmm. and I heard Ventura Highway. You're like, I'm here. In the sunshine Mm -hmm. where the days are longer. (laughs) You know, know, it's like, I'm here. Yeah, Yeah. I'm here. It's really cool. It's really cool. I'm on the Ventura Highway. (laughs) 
except it's a freeway now. It's, like, it's, not, it's not really a highway anymore. And there's no alligator lizards in the air, and I just don't even know what that means. <laughs> yeah. I think he I think was we high. Talked about, we talked yeah. about LSD. We talked yeah. about he was it. high. It had, the it, guy who wrote the song. Yeah. There's a not lot of, Stu. Yeah. Just being clear. <laughs> yeah, thanks. Be clear. Stu gets high. I'm high on life. That's right. Good right. for right. you, Stu. And, and YP. <laughs> Now, now I'm going to start noticing. That was a great segue. Now it's over. Now it's over because now I'm going to start noticing. <laughs> He's like YP. the king of segways. Oh man! And now you're going to remember. Do you ride a segway though? No, I've never ridden a segway. I actually. Well, cra- now you can ride. Cra- I did ride one. Ride one once. I crashed into a bush. Oh <laughs> gosh! That was the end of my segway experience. <laughs> segways are not as cool as those new scooters that are everywhere. That you We're going to go I, on them. You know, I, I've not. I've not rented one yet. Maybe we should do that right after the podcast. Okay, Stu, are you ready? Oh, we can't. We're meeting someone for drinks. <laughs> It's LA. Happy hour. Happy hour. Happy evening. Yes. It might be. It could be. We'll let you know. All right. Okay. So, <laughs> do we want to talk about writing? Or are you guys done with that part of the Oh, story? just other that, that, you know, that Candelita had us. So, so we couldn't go because we, we were all excited to go. And yeah. I was really excited to take her on a, on, mm. on a ride Next because time. I always end up riding by myself because I go on the weekdays and everybody else I know it has a normal job, works on the weekdays. Except and so. for me. <laughs> yeah. Well, you, you have a standing invitation. So, you just I'm know you need to get come. up there. Right. I, I really think we talked about this previously on other podcasts, too. People are going to wonder, like, why doesn't she go with him? Does she not, like, want to go riding with him? Is oh, no, I love riding. Yeah. I do. It must be Stu, then. No. We just have to plan in advance. Yeah, because that's you possible call me and then, and then I, it's like I've already booked my day, you know? This is the problem with most people wanting to see me, is that I book, like, weeks in advance. Yeah, okay. So. Right. Fair enough. Stu, you should just call and be like, I'm in labor. <laughs> She'll <Yeah>. run. Yes. <laughs> Fly out of the she house. Will, you saw fly. me. I did. She was at she my house. She barely even has her shoes on and she's out the door. <laughs> well, yeah, especially if she has baby, people delivering in a, in a dry bathtub. <laughs> she, <laughs> she, she has to get moving quickly. All right, never mind. Let's get, let's get caught up on... Uh, Augustine is here. Let's not waste our uh, Augustine time. Thank let's you. not waste. So tell us about what's up for you now, what's next, and, and your thesis. Yeah, I want to know more about this graduate thing and what you're going to do with it. That's to well, me, the program is the program is fascinating. Um, I'm the third, I'm part of the third cohort to graduate from Bastier in this um, master's program, and it specializes in systems um, thinking, systems level thinking, and applying that to ma- the maternal child health problems in the United States. And it's quite revolutionary, actually. I, I don't really know of any other program um, approaching it this way. Systems level of thinking, of course, is finding solutions by understanding um, the systems in which the problems exist and the environment in which the system is placed in. And so apropos maternal child health, um, we know that we have a maternal health crisis. We know that um, you know black women in the United States are three times more likely to die than white women. We know that we have we rank second in industrialized countries in the world. Yes, in the but isn't, isn't that because seven percent of women are delivering with midwives and one percent are delivering at home? No, no, definitely it's not, not the problem. <laughs> it's not the problem. <laughs> it's not the problem. It's definitely not the problem. But that's what that's everything I read says that the no. problem is the home birth. People. No, definitely not the problem. Oh, but good but to know. but the home birth and the birth center, community based birth, you know, and I. I think this is a distinction that readership should or listenership should know is that um, we used to call it out of hospital birth, but the new language is community based birth because the negative does a very poor job of describing a positive. Mm. And because um, we are not the absence of something, mm-hmm. right? So, hospital birth and community based birth are the two distinguishers now. So, community based birth includes 
home birth and birth center birth and clinics and things that don't really fit into boxes and car births and anything that happens that's not in a hospital is a community-based birth. And so what we're talking about is planned community-based birth. Right. I was going to just ask that question yeah. because living, obviously delivering in a, in a car is not a planned community-based birth. It's not, right. but it has been lumped in together. Like the Wax et al. study, of course, included babies who were unintentionally born in the back of taxis at 23 weeks and things like that. Unless, and you're, of course, you're living in a bus. Yeah, then it's planned. Then Which it's planned. study was that? <laughs> the Wax et al. study? Yeah, what was it that? Oh, that was the big home birth study. That, oh, oh home you, you, birth. Remember, you remember that study. It came was, out of Maine. And mm-hmm. Oh, it was, ten, yeah. ten, uh, Ten years ago, oh, eight years le- ago. Oh, it's le- yeah. Was it that long ago already? I think it was. Oh my God, I'd have to look back. I've, r- I've written some rebuttals to that on the, on my blog. Yeah, version. I mean, it's been you know taken apart because of that because it included all unintended community birth and then told us the statistics of community birth based birth based on on you know unintended taxi births, which mm-hmm. is not the case. So planned community based birth is what I wrote my thesis on, and um, I I wanted to find a solution. Um, to kind of a a dual problem that I I feel like we have. So one problem is obviously the institutionalized care of women in in institutions, in the hospital. Um, We have this increased maternal death rate. We have the increased neonatal outcome that's very poor. We have this really actually devastating cesarean rate that has risen threefold in the last 10 years. And Amnesty International is calling the United States a human health violation because human rights violation because so many women are having cesareans and then are dying from cesareans. And it's the number one. It's the number one performs surgery in, in operating rooms in the United States. Which is, I think it's really interesting. It is mm-hmm. interesting. Mm-hmm. I, I mean, it's kind of shocking. So, so what, that's cesarean the, section. Cesarean section. Yeah, there's, there's 1.3 million cesarean sections performed every in the United States. That's the most performed. Um, and obstetrics, as a specialty, makes more money than any other subspecialty in medicine. So, you know, we have this problem in hospital, which is really quite dire, um, and um, also, inequ- you know, inequitable care. We have a real problem there. And then we also have a problem in community-based birth. And I think this is what many community-based birth providers have a hard time talking about. As we're trying to advance our profession, as we're trying to become the solution, um, there there is a real lack of standardization in education, in practice, in protocols. Um, and there have been multiple appropriate studies that demonstrate some adverse outcomes for people choosing home birth. And so we have this dual problem. Um, and the solution is not, not, is, is not one-sided. So it's not home birth is dangerous. That's not the, the case. Hospital birth is dangerous. That's also not the case. But each, each care location um, has a model of care. So the obstetrical model of care is generally practiced in the hospital, and the midwifery model of care is generally practiced in the community. And they both have strengths, um, but they don't have each other's strengths. And so um, I felt like to tackle the community-based birth challenges, um, if you could kind of sum it up, it would be that we have very siloed educational paths. So there are seven educational paths that can practice out of the hospital. Um, Obstetricians, family practice docs who can be either DO or MD, naturopathic doctors who get midwifery training, CPMs who train through the Meek school process, CPMs who train through the NARM PEP process, CMs, and CNMs. And so those seven educational paths are very siloed. They don't talk to each other. They don't share information. They don't work together. And therefore, they're missing a whole lot of shared wisdom, collegiality. Um, and and by virtue of the educational paths being siloed, it it 
totally distinguishes between those who practice in the hospital and those who practice out of hospital, which is part of what has developed the stigma why community-based providers aren't oftentimes the typical hospital-based providers. Like, I know, Stu, you've lamented about why can't more doctors just get this, you know, and CNMs sometimes break tradition and practice out of the hospital, but not as many as probably would even want to because of the stigma against community-based birth. Well, I think there's a couple of things about that. For sure. Liability and insurance and all kinds of things. Yeah, and I think CNMs also kind of get into that um, world because they know that they can work shifts and they can go all over There's the country. There's some stability, and, for yeah. sure. And yeah, so yeah. so that's a problem in itself is creating sustainability and stability inside the community-based birth community. But, but my thought was, why can't we all work together? And it's, it's sort of a... a, a a simple thought and and sort of maybe childish, but why can't we all work together? (laughs) So, you know, but when, as you were saying this, I like a piece just came together. Hmm. Um, Our previous um, guest in a, in a podcast before you um, is a local doctor Mm -hmm. OB who works in the hospital Mm -hmm. and is, you know, one of our favorites and, and loves home birth and obviously Stu, Mm -hmm. the lovely Stu. Um, But do you know what you guys have in common? Is that you both, when you were in training, you both had midwives that were like around during that time. And I think that yeah. that, that And that's what I find yeah. is that providers who are willing to work in the community setting had exposure. And so I thought, how could we create a system where they could work together and simultaneously get some of the training that is unique to the community setting. So when you get trained in the hospital, I have not been, so pardon me and speak up if that's not the case, but from what I understand, when you get trained to attend birth in the hospital setting, there's a button that you can push for respiratory therapy, for nursing staff, for janitorial staff, for basically anything that you need, there's backup. And what's strikingly different about the community-based setting is that there is really no backup. You're it. You're it, and you must have competence in so many areas. And and that, I think, is the biggest stumbling block to a lot of com- hospital-based providers taking the leap to practicing the community. So I designed um, sort of the rough framework of a residency program for the community setting for all seven educational paths to get experience in a network of clinical sites, um, postgraduate, so after they've all become the type they were going to be, so this is not undergrad education, but postgraduate education, um, that would be a residency program and allow about a year um, in structured, supported practice of their own patients. And the idea would be it would be a cohort of all of these seven different provider types each year working um, together. It sounds amazing. Thanks. Is it is it realistic to have that like funded and you know like I the so. structures of it like? So this was the title of mine. Um, my thesis was community based birth: a viability study. And so, what I've said several times is I I think I created the what and the why, but the how and the who still needs to be answered. Mm-hmm. So that's what I hope to go on and keep keep determining. Um, but the, the I think the unique well I mean not unique to residencies because. Uh, but anyway, as unique to student programs is that this would be a paid residency, mm-hmm. like what happens in medical and sometimes advanced practice nursing programs is that it's a paid residency. It's not at the level that a, a, a you know a, a practicing provider would be paid. It's it's a decreased amount, but as opposed to the starving student process of going through school and paying for it and living and everything. Yeah, I think that makes perfect sense. Yeah. You you couldn't have people who've already finished their residency program or 
or just finished a midwifery school come out and then expect to have to pay right. for that. So uh, residents do get paid and they should. Right. The, the, the obvious question is going to be, if it's a community-based system, are we going to be talking about having these people practicing in a community, to, to use the old term, out of hospital? Mm-hmm. Or would there be certain hospitals designated as referral centers where they would be trained in both both places? How, how does that, how do you incorporate that? Mm-hmm. Because obviously some of these ba- people are gonna need to be transported. Where are they gonna go? Who's gonna be then responsible for them? Can the midwives continue to care for them when they go to the hospital? What kind of hospital in America is gonna let that happen? So many great questions. I love you. You helped me this year in my creating yeah, the I, what and the what. I, I, yeah, the who I, and the how. I, I would love to because I pondered this stuff for a really yeah, long time. Yeah, I have too. And so um, I don't foresee this being um, a hospital-based program because the point is community-based. Yes. But it would need to obviously have contractual arrangements with local hospitals to receive those transports. What I'm envisioning, and I, I have a few sites who have already become excited about being a part of a pilot program for this is that existing birth centers who do home and birth center birth who have senior skilled preceptors who would be willing to add um, a a pilot program where clients contract with the residents correct and are overseen by the attendants right exactly so that the client's income themselves is what subsidizes the program Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So what's what's next for you now that you're done with school? Well, I applied for um, a funded fellowship mm-hmm. this year. Uh, I had my first interview for that, and it went well, I think. So fingers crossed. Um, I might actually be funded to continue this research and potentially implementation. Um, I'm also very excited to announce that um, Robin Lim has asked me to come and help start another clinic in uh, Indonesia. That's, that's great. So I'm very honored to get to work with this legend and go live in uh, Papua New Guinea for a time to help start um, uh, the fifth clinic in the Bumi Sihat. But we need um, you in. Section. We need you in. Uh, you know, in central Los Angeles. <laughs> well, well tell, I can't practice here. Yeah, and tell 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 our listeners what you said about practicing in America in general. I don't think I will. Yeah, why? Again. Why? Well, um, uh, you know, (laughs) with our for-profit medical system, um, we really have competition where there shouldn't be any. And um, I... I'm a fairly outspoken gal, <laughs> and uh, I, I tend to do what I say I'm going to do, which mm-hmm. is usually pretty big projects. And uh, it's kind of a game of whack-a-mole, and I was the highest mole for quite a while. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think I can take any more bruises from the American medical cartel. Like, it, it's just like a little too much mm-hmm. uh, for me personally. I yeah. completely understand that. Yeah, they're, they're really out for blood, and it's getting worse, I think. I hear about, I mean, I, in my position, I also own a national consulting firm, and I get calls pretty regularly from midwives and other birth providers around the country who need to case review or peer review or just get their chart in order in the midst of their own trauma because of an investigation or audit or a lawsuit. And so I've, I've got to process with a lot of providers about this problem. Um, and, you know, I've shared pretty openly about mine in the, in the five years I had a birth center open in Southern Oregon. Um, I was investigated 39 times. Um, and there was never a bad outcome and never a patient complaint. Every one of the complaints was generated by the physicians who took the properly risk assessed clients for transports. And that kind of retaliation, persecution, 
um, is really untenable. Like that's a scenario yeah. to, to work under that. I mean, not only do you have the life and death of two patients, like all the time in your hands, but you're also managing the business and the admin and finances of keeping a business open. And then you probably have employees and students. And then maybe you also have kids and oh, maybe a life, that thing called self-care, maybe a partner uh, and maybe that even. <laughs> and nah. Nah. (laughs) (laughs) And I would say I probably spend mm, a good 60 to 75% of my time um, defending myself and my actions. And what does that do to a a community-based provider when they they can't transport for the safety of their clients with fear of of having an investigation? Like, it's not safe. They eventually quit. Yeah. yeah, but it's also not it's safe, not safe. healthcare. No, of course not. But they, yeah. that's not the that's not the mission of the of the ninnies who are reporting. Her. Yeah, they're not. Well, their goal is not they, actually. They, they safety. will argue that it's about safety, no. but it really isn't about safety. And we go back to it, that systems level thinking, right? right? I mean, right. that if the level pro- one, the problems level two of occurring in obstetrics are occurring in the hospital, not in the home setting. But that, but it's too it's too blinding for them to look at. So they'll look at the. At the little thing that uh, that the transport came in, or that that was bothersome to them because they had to then get off their butt, come in and take care of somebody who they didn't really want to take care of. Right. That sort of thing. We see that all the time. I, I was talking. Uh, um, I think I might have mentioned this last podcast. I talked to a pediatrician friend of mine. There's something coming down the pike in Sacramento now regarding the 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 bill on vaccines. Uh, I think it's the Senator Assembly Bill 286. I can't remember if it's Senator Assembly that they're going to go after doctors. Mm-hmm. The whole, they already have the whole. It, yeah, but the, the the new the new twist that just came in, was just voted upon, is that they're gonna any doctor that does more than five exemptions in a year is going to be investigated. Probably there's one in Mendocino County who's just had all of her records requested. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. It's really and so they're gonna shut they're gonna close those people down and they're gonna do it by intimidation because yeah. the individual practitioner who wants to give their patients informed consent is going to get beaten mm-hmm. beaten down by a larger system. That and that's why I call it the medical oriented. cartel. I yeah, mean, it's a medical cartel. It's not an organization. It's not. It, we're not in public best interest right now. No. We are actually in their own best interest and in keeping. Have we their ever? Own have monopoly. we ever had a time when we were in public's best interest? I mean, I think. I think before before we had this super centralization, super control of the market. I think there were a lot of doctors who would show up and say, "How can I help you?" I really think yeah. that was true. So what would that would be in the in the sixties and seventies or pre, <laughs> even like you know old west days. You know, but I think there were truly healers in the medical profession who are like, I'm here to help you. You're obviously suffering. How can I help you? And I, that is a really not yeah, the it case was, any it was longer. Before, it was before uh, the lawyers insurance, and the monetary probably. and the insurance yeah. got it. And, the, yeah. you know, the monetary benefit got into yeah. it. I mean, you know, country doctors did not make a lot of money. No. I mean, they lived, the they lived on, on, on a loaf of bread and some chicken that was given to them. Yeah. Um, barter. That sort of thing. There yeah. was a lot of bartering going on. Yeah. Yeah. And they, they, but they had a lot of respect in the community and there yeah. was, so there was there was gratitude in that way i mean there was obviously a lot of problems with the care that was provided but you're right you're, you're absolutely right it's a it is there is a medical cartel and and whether it's big medicine or it's big pharma or it's it's uh it's politicians who have uh you know who have monetary incentive uh for uh, what do you call it the campaign donations or whatever else that yeah. gets them reelected or whatever um because it's we because see we're living in an oligarchy. This is not a democracy. This is, you know, the rich control everything. <laughs> I don't know if that's too outspoken for your podcast, but no, we no, see it, it in the case. I mean, no, I certainly saw it in the case in that situation, and and I've consulted with many, many other midwives who are who are in that game of whack a mole, and they are being systematically beaten down. But it's and not even. It's not even. It, it, again, it's it's the super rich. Okay, because there are 
there are, there are rich people who, you know, there are a lot of people in Hollywood it's here. It's the 1%. Yeah, well, there are a lot of people in Hollywood here who have a lot of money who don't want to vaccinate their kids or don't or want to have a home birth, all right? But they're not going to come, they're not going to go uh, testify in front of the Senate or the, or the Assembly because they don't want to be Twitter mobbed to death. That's right. And uh, they're going to get, and, and so they rather just keep their head low. Yep. Because they don't want to be picked on either. Because if yep. they if they don't vaccinate their kids, who knows with Child Protective Services knocking on their door? Yeah. And that sort well, of thing scares only, everybody. It's usually, I mean, this Jennifer Margolis is one of the ones that makes the best points around this. Like, it is the well-educated, informed group that is refusing vaccines. Like it is, yeah. it, like hello, look around you, and then also, you know, it's only the ones who are vehemently speaking out are the ones who have experienced vaccine uh, injury, injuries, who right. have experienced obstetric violence, who have experienced all that 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 we talk about. They're not crazy people. <laughs> they they are the victims, you know. And why we can't listen to the the lived experience of victims is is really crazy to me. So, I, I you know, I, I won't practice. In well, the US with, I, until I think there's I massive think, change, and I think we're 15 years from change, at least. You think it's okay? Well, yeah, that's too late for me too. Yeah, but, but not uh, me. Self care, self care, self care. So next, if, you, next if change were to come, Augustine, in 15 years, yeah, 20 years, whatever, how do you see it coming? What what paradigm do you see opening up and changing? Would you? I mean, midwifery. Uh, the midwifery model of care will be mainstream in such a way again. But don't you Again. think that don't you think that big business will then take over midwifery? Care? Yeah, and it is, and it it already both, is both. But That's true. but the bottom line, the financial bottom line that motivates the capitalists that control our healthcare system, will be able to make money off obstetrics like always. But it will be off midwifery, and I think that's in some ways sad, but at least it's choice, and that's what I'm fighting for. If the midwifery model of care can be preserved, not just these quote unquote birth centers that offer obstetrical care. Yeah, yeah. But, but actually, the midwifery model of care, if the midwifery model of care can be preserved in the community setting, I really don't care who makes money off of it, as long as women get that kind of safe choice. As long, yeah, as long as the choices are still open and honest. Yeah. What happens is that you, when, when, you know, if midwife's job is dependent on following the company line and only recommending this option and not that option right. which is what happens now in the hospital setting right. and in the medical model right you know you can have this medication but not that medication you can have this procedure but not that procedure and even and, and you, you can have this c-section but you can't have this vaginal choice mm -hmm. and that and that a lot of that is influence i just don't see again i i, I don't you know i i do have a pessimistic streak because i because i've fought this for a really long time in my right. life and i don't see um even if it changes the 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 big oligarch that you're talking about is going to want to control that as well. And I don't know how you ever break it down. Things only seem to get more centralized and you almost never see it go the other way anymore. I know. You know, there's nobody up breaking up uh, Ma Bell anymore. Know. Maybe in 10 years we will be breaking up Facebook and breaking up Google and stuff like there's that. Let's talk about it. Yeah, well, there, there's reasons for that too. Mm -hmm. You can't let anything, anything that gets that big then becomes a threat to... to you know, Which the, is why decentralized community-based birth is the solution. I agree. But the other thing to think about is that things are changing in a lot of different ways. And more women are in, like, in positions of power and politics and are more outspoken and feeling more confident. So if we're looking at the systems, like the, the overarching system it's going to be changing and shifting too in ways that we don't, we can't totally understand. 
you you told me something hmm. when uh, the day that we didn't go horseback riding <laughs> um, about a certain critical mass of percent that need that need. Why don't you just? We're going to have to finish up now. We're going to wrap up. So, but just speak about that because you said there are three stages. There's basically the ignored stage. There's the ridicule stage, and I forgot the third one was like acceptance. Accepted as right. self-evident. Right. Mm-hmm. Okay. So we're. We're at least we're making ways because we're now at being the ridiculed and, and persecuted stage. Us. Yes. Mm-hmm. The midwifery group, mm-hmm. whatever The, the we home are. birth world. Community-based. Uh, community yes. Okay. Because that includes uh, it's gonna take It's yeah. going to take me time to change my terminology. Well, it includes you. Right, mm-hmm. but it's going to take me time to change. Yeah, I for just, sure. Yeah, it just yeah. comes yeah, yeah. out of, rolls like out of your mouth. Saying. Like mm-hmm. A lot of people will say provider, and I hate the word provider uh-huh. because I like the word practitioner. Because uh-huh. provider, it just implies... Like you know, the, guy that, the guy that's toasting your making your toast yeah. is a provi- <laughs> toast provider. But so, critical mass is theorized to be pi three point one four. Yes. So, so when we reach that. when we reach critical mass, that is when the com- the community demand, the patient, the consumer demand, is so high that it is accepted as a mainstream choice. Mm-hmm. And and several of the Western states have reached critical mass in community based birth. Which ones? Um, Washington mm-hmm. and Oregon, mm-hmm. Idaho. Um, Utah. Uh, and so those states, in those states, it is so normal to choose midwifery that it is a part of the conscious decision of even first-time parents, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. And so when most of the country has reached critical mass, this siloed systemic fight between obstetricians and midwives will no longer be relevant. And that's when change will come. That's cool. Yay. Well, right. I just want to say, as I was sitting here between you two, I just feel so blessed that I got to learn from both of you. You're both so brilliant and so brave. And um, I just had a moment where I just was like, ah, <laughs> I got to learn from both of you. And I, I just am so happy to have you here in the same room. Thank you. And hopefully in, in next summer, I'll be going to visit her at the birth center and maybe in, spending in some time. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Oh, that's nice. my that's our plan. I'll go. Yeah. <laughs> Great. I, yeah, was, I would love to go. I, I, was, I would love to do that. I was supposed to go sailing on this trip with her and I got clients and didn't do that and I'm kicking myself for that. So we have plans to we have plans. conquer the world and sail all over. Yeah. Um, and you're welcome on our boat. Anytime. Yeah, well, yeah, yeah, as long as you have a barf bag, I'll be I'll be fine. I told I told her that. I've tried everything, you know. Yeah, but she said after two or three days, I'd probably either be You'd dead be or I'd be fine. Yeah, Aww. I'm voting for fine. I'm voting for fine, too. She's the optimist in the group. Yeah, <laughs> thank is. you so much for thank coming, you. Oh, my God, I'm yes, honored. thank you so much. Thank so you. you have blessed us with podcast number 149. And we know that people who listen to podcasts have so many choices out there, and we're really grateful that people do. And I forgot at the beginning to give our contact information. So you can find uh, us on Facebook or you can find us on iTunes. You can find us at drstewspodcast.com. You can find me at uh, uh, birthinginstincts.com or uh, at birthinginstincts on Instagram. You can find Bliss at... Birthing Bliss Midwifery on social media and birthingbliss.com. And you can find Augustine at... At Art of Birthing and at Wise Women Helped Me Out. So thanks again for everybody for your your attention. We hope that this podcast, like all our podcasts, keeps your interest for an entire hour. (laughs) And we look forward to seeing you next time. Bye-bye.